So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. So, Vicky, we've got a great show today. Oh, I'm so excited for this. We have a whole show with Sherry DeNovo. Our listeners may know she declared her candidacy for federal NDP leader this past week. Yeah, so Sherry is currently an MPP in Ontario's legislature, but she's got this fascinating background. She lived on the street. She at one point sold drugs. She became a successful headhunter, putting women in high-powered positions. And then after that, she became a minister, and now she's a politician. So she's lived this immense life, and now she wants to lead the NDP. And she's also categorically refusing to pay the $30,000 NDP entry fee that they've set for the leadership, which is <laughs> so great in terms of being like, fuck all y'all and your rules. Like, I'm going to do it my way and, and my style. So we have tons to get into with her. It's going to be such a good show. I'm Supriya Devetti. I'm Vicky Mochama. And this is Canada Land Commons. This episode of Canada Land Commons is supported by Audible.com. If you go to audibletrial.com slash Canadaland right now, you get a free audiobook and a 30-day free trial. Supriya, what book should people look for? Jessica Valenti's new book is out on Audible, Sex Object, a Memoir. Uh, Jessica Valenti, of course, is a columnist at The Guardian and has written lots of books before on things like feminism, misogyny, and uh, slut-shaming. And I'm really looking forward to it. Listeners, go to audibletrial.com slash CanadaLand right now for a free audiobook and a 30-day free trial. Once again, that's audibletrial.com slash CanadaLand. First of all, I was uh, the talking head throughout the Edmonton Convention here for one of the mainstream media channels and was very outspoken about what I thought the federal party should do after the the disaster of the last election. And I was outspoken about the provincial party after the disaster of our last (laughs) provincial election. And uh, when the Edmonton Convention happened, I was surprised that the rank and file made really painful, difficult, but right decisions there. And then proud. And then I thought, great. I can shut up now. The party's on the right track. And then I saw all this pushback coming from party pundits really attacking the rank and file for so the like decisions the inside they baseball, made. The inside yeah, baseball um, you know, especially the Leap Manifesto, which, uh, you know, the, the attacks on that were just scurrilous and ridiculous, and many of them coming from our party. So again, I felt I can't shut up now. I mean, I'm going to have to defend what is 
pretty obvious to most Canadians, I think, on the left. Then nothing seemed to be happening in terms of the federal leadership. And again, that voice attacking the leap seemed to be the only one out there. So that motivated me. I thought, listen, I'm hearing all of this from the rank and file. I'm hearing all of this from the folk out there that I know in social media and in the city. And so really, I I'm putting myself forward for them. So I'm being the voice for the rank and file, not just within the party, but all of those on the left who feel that the NDPs let them down. It's not right. their party anymore. So for all of that voice, I decided to be a voice. Can you tell us more about that voice that you are looking to speak to? So who's yeah. the audience that you're looking to okay. reach to on the left? Those who unabashedly call themselves socialists, democratic socialists, who aren't afraid of the word, in fact, proud of it. Those who think that casino capitalism has taken us to a very scary place, both in terms of our climate crisis and uh, and certainly in terms of precarious work and and labor laws and uh, social justice and folk your age are in the most precarious situation, but so are seniors who are retiring, many of them, without pensions. Like, you can't live on CPP. So we've got at one end or the other end of our, our labor spectrum real uh, precarious work if there's work at all. We've got sky-high tuition fees. I mean, simple democratic socialist principles Things like free or almost free childcare, free post-secondary education, pharmacare, dental care, a housing policy so that we don't have homeless. We should be striving for an almost 100% unionization rate. And that's not utopian. I mean, it's 85% in Sweden, for example. All of these are pretty solid tenets of socialism and of democratic socialism. And we can also see that the climate is in crisis. We should not be building pipelines. We should not be refurbishing nuclear plants. We have got to move to renewables and we've got to move to sustainability and we've got to do it quickly. So that seems to me all of those issues are pressing. We certainly didn't hear it from the the campaign that the federal party ran. So somebody's got to say these things. And if that somebody is me, I'll be it. So let, let's circle back a little bit to the Leap Manifesto. Sure. Um, do you want to just give us a synopsis, I guess, of, of what it was? It's calling for a move to renewables quickly. It's calling for a new look really at what undergirds capitalism because you can't have endless growth. This is not compatible with a sustainable planet. And profit isn't. Endless profit. And the kind of social inequality we're seeing where the rich have to seemingly get richer all the time and pay less and less taxes so we can't even pay for the social services we have now. And First Nations. I mean, the fact that we refuse to really deal seriously with their treaty rights, that these pipelines will be going through their territory, that we're saying these symbolic apologies on one side and then screwing them out of their land on the other. I mean, this has got to stop. This is not sustainable. And I think everybody knows that. Paris said that. The Paris aims that we signed on for are the same as Harper. Um, we're still subsidizing fossil fuels and we will be till 2025. That's outrageous. That's outrageous. So again, the leap addresses that. And none of this is, seems to me radical. This seems to me obvious. So why the pushback? How do you square integrating leap on a, a national huge level when Alberta, which right now is governed by the NDP, mm-hmm. is hurting economically, and they're obviously very reliant on things like pipelines and fossil sure. fuels. So how does that come about? Okay, first and foremost, environmentalists did not cause the problems in Alberta. <laughs> Big oil did. So Alberta is the perfect case of why we need to move to other resources for our fuel. It's a perfect case of why we need to move to renewables, not to mention Fort McMurray, which, by the way, the mainstream media never, you know, it, we had to look outside the country to The Guardian and to 
Al Jazeera and to other sources of media, to the New Yorker, then, you know, Scientific American, to see the analysis that said this is because of the climate crisis. We're getting drier. So again, but we, but we, we are getting yeah. dry, but isn't it irresponsible to link any one event to climate to begin with? And can't we just say that the climate is getting drier and these sorts of wildfires extreme, are more common? Extreme weather uh, situations like the fires in Fort McMurray are happening increasingly quickly. They're happening 10 times as quickly or more than they were a decade ago. This is what the climate crisis looks like. So again, what about jobs? There are far more jobs in a green economy than there are in a fossil fuel economy. And we should be retooling and rethinking right now. Here's an opportunity when oil or was an opportunity when oil is down. And this is a wake up call. This is what happens when you're a one resource economy and the price falls. People are thrown out of work. And this is after subsidizing big oil. You know, you'd think that part of that subsidy would be to keep people on when Mm -hmm. the oil drops. So it shows how we're absolutely at the mercy of multinationals. I mean, I was just at a subcommittee that I sit on for energy in in the United States. And Iowa, a third of their energy comes from wind. Hawaii, for obvious reasons, I suppose, they've got lots of sun, but they can be 100% renewable very soon. India is actually looking to move to more solar as well. Exactly. The Midwest in the United States, which is where I was, could be completely on renewables by 2050. We need those kind of targets and we need to meet them if we're going to survive. And this is just capitalism will even tell you this. I mean, insurers are saying with a, at a 2% across the board warmer rate, which was the Paris aim, we can still barely insure people. But at 3 or 4%, nobody's going to have insurance. Think about that. Mm. Yeah. This is the crisis of our generation, of everyone who's alive right now. And if we don't solve it, it will be too late. You know, it's horrible to sound like the voice of doom, but there are lots of signs of hope if we act. So let's circle back to your leadership. Other big names in the NDP, like your Nathan Collins and your Megan Leslie's, uh, have said they don't want the job. So why aren't people stepping up to the plate? First of all, it's very, very early days. Um, I think we're going to see a number of people stepping up to the plate. And as I've said, it's not about the personality anyway. I think the true leadership of the party, the rank and file and the grassroots and all those people that don't have a party right now. So it's somebody who can really bring those voices together into the fore. And if I see somebody who's upholding all of these tenants, you know, listen, um, <laughs> I'm happy to cede, cede the reins and back them up. But it's about the principles. Should you be doing you? What, what's yeah, should you be saying I'm I'm best? here. <laughs> I'm doing me. But um, but I also want to make really clear, it's not about a personality or a position. It really is about fundamentally refocusing the party and fundamentally going back, not forward, going back to our roots, going back to the, what Douglas and, and J.S. Woodsworth and Agnes McPhail, what they stood for. And they unabashedly stood for socialism. They unabashedly were anti-capitalists. They unabashedly stood for not a small elite running, you know, a large majority. They stood for all of, you know, the, the things that I'm talking about, that Bernie's talking about, that Jeremy Corbyn's talking about in the UK. This is not particular to Canada. This is happening worldwide. So part of your candidacy is that it's unofficial and that you refuse to pay the $30,000, double the last amount the party asked and probably, you know, quadruple what Jack Layton paid when he entered it. And, and not only, it's not only 30000 it's $1.5 million, which is the cap that you can spend in the leadership race. Well, this is daunting. I, I think it's daunting for people like me, because I'm your average Canadian. I don't have $30,000 sitting around. And I think it's daunting, particularly for people of color, for First Nations, for women, for queers. It's daunting for those who don't have their hands on a lot of capital. 
people. It sends absolutely the wrong message about what a democratic socialist party should be. We should be different from the others, not trying to run the same old, same old. Isn't part of having that $30,000 entry fee, I guess, if you want to call it that, part of making sure that only serious candidates, though, could come in? And, you know, why is money? Well, I why guess, is money the so, marker for seriousness? Like, why isn't it getting signatures? Like, if we really want to be democratic. Mm-hmm. Why isn't, you know, okay, you need a thousand signatures to run something that anybody could do without a lot of money, but with a lot of, you know, hustle. Um, why is money the mark of seriousness? I totally and absolutely reject that, especially for a democratic socialist party market. You know, money is not the mark of seriousness. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be the mark of who's good and who's not, who's leadership worthy and who's not. The real honest truth about why the 30,000 is because the party needs the money. But my point is, you can raise money for the party in other ways. You don't need to make it a barrier for running for the leadership. I mean, clearly, job one of whoever's going to be the leader is going to be have to get some money raised for the next election. But I mean, that's part of a whole group of skills. It shouldn't be the only skill or the salient skill for leadership. And that really is the only marker when you think about it. Yeah. You know, just $30,000 and you can run for leader. So do you think that like, someone like me could just declare, well, now I'm running for the leadership for the NDP. Can I become your competition? If you got 30,000, you can. Vicky Sherry. <laughs> <laughs> then you'll be an official candidate and I and I won't be. I mean, I've had 10 years of political experience. My goodness, I've been doing this social justice thing since 1971. I was the only woman who signed on to the We Demand document. The very first pride picnic on Hanlon's Point. I mean, I've been political activist for a long, long time. So, you know, that's a perfect case. So you could have somebody come along who's, you know, a member of the NDP and pays $30,000 who just joined the party yesterday and has no political experience. Really? Is that what we're saying as a party? So you mentioned your criticism of the federal campaign that the NDP ran. Was there one kind of tipping point or, or flashpoint moment to you in the campaign that you were like, oh, fuck, this is where. Yeah. The oh, to me and downhill. to me and everyone else across Canada. And that was the, the moment. And, and, and especially to the back, the backroom liberal strategist, when ta- when Mulcair said that we were going to balance the budget. Yeah. Um, and, and Gerald Butts, who's a strategist for the Liberal Party, said that's when we knew we had them. <laughs> that's when we knew we were done. It's shocking how bad and how sad that campaign was. We lost some great people. Um, We could have been government. This was a once in a lifetime opportunity. I hope not once in a lifetime, but it seemed like it at the time. And we blew it. We blew it. And then to make matters worse, the spin that was coming out of the federal executive was, well, you know, this is the second best result we've ever had. Give me a break. (laughs) Say, tell all those, you know, downtrodden, uh, hardworking volunteers on all those campaigns, especially across Toronto, you know, tell all those MPs who, good MPs who had more signs, more funding, more volunteers, you know, more marks at the door than they'd ever had and still lost. Tell them, oh, but don't worry. This is the second best election result we ever had. That was ridiculous. And that's when I knew I had to speak just to sleep at night. You know, our generation is often told that we don't get out in the streets enough. and We're not making enough change. Having been part of so many important social movements yourself, how do you think Black Lives Matter or Occupy or Idle No More compares to the social movements of the days of yore? Very favorably. Now, the 60s was a time of global unrest, but I think now is a time of global unrest, too. In a kind of weird way, the difference is the media, because back then the cameras were on in 1968 at the Democratic Convention. And when the police baton hit the 
camera, you saw the glass shatter. Uh, they were in Vietnam. They were showing you what was going on in the war. You know, now the media's a lot of it's pretty bought and sold, I think. And we don't see the huge demonstrations in France. We didn't see the huge demonstrations on the streets in Montreal. Black Lives Matter was covered, but I don't think as well as it could have been. Occupy, certainly not. These are huge social movements. They're just not getting the press's attention as much, but they're every bit as large. I'd say larger. Remember that back in the 60s, because I'm a 60s kid, there was a small group of us who were making a lot of noise, and, and I think a big difference. But now you've got a big group and making a lot of noise, and I think making a big difference. I'm very hopeful for the future. I'm excited by what I see young people do. Black Lives Matter is one of the best things that's happened in ages. I just wish that politicians took it seriously instead of just paying lip service to it. I mean, we live in a country that's systemically racist, and we have to confront that. Uh, so that's one of the reasons I say if somebody of color comes forward who's a better candidate than I am, it's not about the personality. It's just about the issues. Why don't you think politicians take it seriously? I, I mean, at least on Twitter, you know, if you're looking around, there seems to be a sizable you know, number of constituents that have the same sort of concerns. So do you think it's like a they just ultimately don't care? I think because it's systemic and they don't want to look at what's causing the systemic racism. It's just like with our First Nations and Indigenous peoples. We don't want to look at what's causing the problems. I read a wonderful article about, you know, the kind of food share programs, which are great as far as they go, you know, second harvest and things. And trust me, we fed people in our church on those programs and we wouldn't have if they didn't exist. But really the problem is not sharing the food. Really the problem is poverty mm-hmm. um, and systemic poverty. And it's the same in First Nations the same for people of color. Um, We have to look at why poverty is at the rates it is. And I can tell you, the answers are pretty simple, and they're answers politicians don't want to hear. And that is, we're not taxing the rich enough, we're not taxing corporations enough, and we don't have the money to pay for the social services we need, and we're not building housing, and we're not doing all the other things that socialists say we should be doing. That's why people are poor, and that's why racism gets to flourish, because there's only one job. Guess why you sort people out that way, right? This is how those that do run the economy keep a constant labor force. So you have to kind of get economic about this and look at who are the enemies here? Where does this racism, where's homophobia or transphobia coming from? Where's misogyny coming from? Um, And it's coming from this need to have control over precarious labor and keep labor precarious and keep people down, keep people poor. So you're making an economic argument there. And I think I've heard it before from other people, especially I think looking into the arguments maybe Bernie Sanders activists would have made, which is to say that economics is what allows for people to separate people according to race and gender. But I think Black Lives Matter activists and myself included would say like white supremacy is the very basis of that. It's the heart of that. It's not economics. Even if everyone was essentially equal, as long as white supremacy is allowed to reign, you would still have racism. Oh, yes. But white supremacy, look where it came from. It was free black labor is where white supremacy was born. And throughout history, it was slavery upon which white supremacy was born in a sense. So, I mean, keeping people down works. It works really well in casino capitalism, which is what we're living in right now, you know, craziness of Wall Street and Bay Street. When you start allowing people to have enough to eat, the education they need, you develop a more even playing field and those attitudes are lessened. And you're right, there's more to it than that. But it is a major part. And we have to look at that part. And no government wants to look at that because they won't get, you know, they're scared to talk about raising taxes on corporations, because that's who's fueling uh, the political uh, neoliberalism. That's who's paying the parties. What are some of your little uh, guilty pleasures? I'll tell you one of mine. It's uh, watching the Kardashians every Sunday night. Yeah, religiously, actually. What guilty pleasure I got. I love reality TV. 
Like do you I watch the Kardashians? Okay, I don't watch the Kardashians, <laughs> but I got started watching Sister Wives, which is really bizarre for me. But I I started watching that, and just as a queer activist, I'm always interested in different family forms. So I, you know, occasionally I'll I'll, I'll dip into that because it's just so strange. But I mean, I I watch like fashion shows. I like fashion. I like clothes. I'm I'm the vintage shopper, so I'm like the shopper par excellence. So those are guilty pleasures of mine. I used to ages ago watch like the Real Housewives kind of stuff. But it got so boring and so repetitive. It's so like, scripted. I it's feel so like. scripted. Yeah, it's I kind of like, lost. Oh, it. so they're going to put them all in a house yeah. and they're all going to have a fight. Like yeah, I, I think I know what's going to happen. That. I watch million dollar listings because those are there's capitalism in action when you look at Manhattan or you look at San Francisco or, or Toronto or Toronto yeah. And, yeah. and you know like only rich people can live in Manhattan so it's sort of you know the guilty pleasure of looking at these beautiful places that nobody can ever afford or looking at those great clothes that nobody can yeah. ever afford you know which <laughs> yeah. um, is interesting because you know there's this image of the socialist you know as Birkenstocks and you know like plaid shirts or something like like really if you look at socialists in Europe especially in Italy I can tell you they're wearing Armani <laughs> First of all, they believe in being paid well, and they have a high unionization rate, so they have the disposable income to spend on union-made clothes. Think about that. So, you know, it's not about this drab, boring, you know, sort of Soviet world when you talk about socialism. It's it's actually, if you go to Europe, you see that it's actually pretty vibrant and pretty exciting, and there's money to be spent on things. That's the difference. Somebody, I think someone on Twitter ages ago described someone as a Chardonnay socialist, and I was like... That actually sounds really good because hey, Chardonnay is I'm delish. I'm a coast socialist <laughs> <laughs> and proud of it. But I can't afford to buy a bottle. Very, you know, it's rare. It's a treat. Yeah. yeah. But my God, I like it. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm Chablis myself. So, you <laughs> there know, you go. It all works out. I'm a Dom girl, so yeah. oh, the range well, there here. you go. Even better. <laughs> yeah. I, and good red wine, of course. Good red wine. Yes. So, how would you convince somebody who feels disaffected from the last election and disengaged from the political process, just generally, to get back into the swing of things and to actually swing towards the NDP and not with the Liberals because, you know, they did kind of eat into that leftist sort of territory. Yeah, well, they ate in with their spin, but they don't eat in with their policies. We're still looking at them selling the Sauds armaments. We're still looking at TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is going to be a nightmare. And mark my words, you'll see Liberals bringing in austerity budgets. They're going to have to because unless you raise corporate taxes significantly, Remember in Germany and throughout Europe, they're about double R's. You're not going to have the money to spend on the social programming. So you can't have one without the other. And that's going to happen. So, but, you know, I also see that we're living in, you know, Trudeau mania 2.0, and it's going to go on for a while. Got it. Which is good for us, I think, because it gives us a chance to regroup, rebuild, rebrand, and be who we should be. So again, how? what's your sell to somebody to say, step out of Trudeau mania and come hang out with the NDP? Yeah, well, let's make a real difference in the world. Let's let's save the planet for starters. Um, let's no small feet right there. <laughs> right there. But some very simple steps we should be making, like say no to the, you know, giving fossil fuels money. That's ridiculous. And that's going to go until 2025. Stop it. Stop it already. Right. So for any environmentalist out there, yes, you know, the Liberal Party is making some moves in Ontario and some of them are good. Um, but we should be making so much more. So for any environmentalists out there, um, you know, we should be and can be that party. And for certainly social justice types, I mean, they're already being let down by the Liberal Party in Ottawa. I don't mean to uh, say I told you so uh, in any way, but when you guys chose to you know, make Tom Mulcair your leader. I was at the time hosting a radio show in Quebec and me and my co-host were kind of like, what? 
Okay, I guess. He used to be a right-leaning politician under Jean Charest's government. Did you ever really believe that Tom LeCaire was going to be this progressive champion for the left? Or were you guys kind of like, Sadly, eh. we did. When I first heard him speak and when Jack was alive, when Jack first recruited him, very charismatic, very smart man. I thought, wow, this is coming. This is a force out of Quebec. And remember, you know, the Orange Crush was election in, yeah. was in Quebec. And so I think the general party was, oh, we really need, we need the Quebecois voice in the party and this is it Tom's the guy so I you know I, I supported Peggy Nash yeah. but when it looked like she was running third or something I switched like so many of her supporters did over to Tom and it was because of that and because we had hope and that's too bad but you got to remember it's not about always about the person there's a huge team of people around these leaders who are strategists who are devising lines that come out of their mouths every line he read was scripted I thought that was a real problem when I saw him on the road, um, you know, he wasn't the speaking from the yeah, yeah, he wasn't mm-hmm. speaking from the heart. It was all it just looked like every other political campaign you've ever seen. So, but there's this whole group that craft a campaign, and it was that group that's the problem. He, of course, has to take responsibility because he said yes to it all, right? And he's the face of the party. But it's not him alone. And the same was true in the provincial election. All those people are gone from Queen's Park. They were part of that campaign. And some of the same transitions happening in Ottawa, clearly not enough of that transition in my books. I want to talk about how that might relate to your leadership. We noted when you came in here earlier that, you know, you don't you didn't come with any staff, but as you run for leadership and more people are going to want to join you or be a part of what you're doing, are you concerned that there's going to be that effect where suddenly you're going to have strategists telling you how to get back with the party or get into the party again? Well, first of all, my staff are great and they're there and they're working hard and they're also unionized. And I, you know, why should they come along with me? I mean, <laughs> like really, like got other things they can do. So they're there. And yes, I get that experience is good, but well, I'll quote you. I won't say who said this, but I thought it was a pretty good quote because I was asking somebody in Ottawa, I said, and this was before the federal campaign, I said, so like, who's doing your policy? Like, who's deciding what you folk are talking about? And this person was an MP, and she said, eh, some 23-year-old. <laughs> um, I mean, it's a little ageist, but it's also kind of scarily eerily true. Right. Like, somebody's coming out of some PR firm who's got the ear of the leader, and you see this a lot in politics, right? I think that's kind of a little bit scary. I think who should have the, first of all, who should have the ear of the leader, but should also be what the leader is representing is the rank and file. Are those activists and are those people who really do feel disenfranchised? You know, if we're going to win, it's not going to be from the people who vote now. And that and that was proved in this last federal election. The reason the Liberals won is because all these new voters came out to vote. There are a whole bunch of people out there who want to be engaged and just don't see a reason. They saw a reason in this last federal election, get Harper out for sure. And they didn't see an alternative in us. I think the next election, if we present an alternative, you can see the same kind of sweeps happen, especially in federal politics, where people say, we thought they were going to deliver and they haven't. That's the hope. Is there ever concern that the NDP is a party that's great on the margins of power and then not so great as they get closer? Well, sadly, we've had an example of Bob Ray, you know, and others of, of exactly that. I ran into Gary Dewar, who was the former, you know, premier of Manitoba, longstanding. Um, and what was he doing? He was in the States and he was shilling for Harper for the Keystone XL. If that's the best we can offer when we're in power, then, 
you know, no, that's not the party that Tommy envisioned or that J.S. Woodsworth or Agnes McPhail envisioned. That's not the socialist party. That's just another centrist neoliberal party. So, I mean, again, I'm hopeful because we've been there before. You know, we've stood for those values before. We've stood for those principles. We can do it again. There isn't another party that can that's on the horizon right now. So let's keep working to, to bring it back to what it should be. That's our show for this week. Make sure to follow us on Twitter or Facebook by typing in Candleland Commons into that search bar. Our producer is Kevin Sexton, and our music is by Nathan Burley. Our website is CanadaLandShow.com. You can email me, Vicky, at Vicky at CanadaLandShow.com or on Twitter at Vimochama. And Supriya, how can they get a hold of you? By getting a hold of you, of course. Our next episode of Shortcuts comes out on Thursday and our next episode of Commons on Tuesday. If you like the show and we know you do, support us. Patreon.com slash CanadaLand. So Vicky, we lied earlier. We lied a little. When we said the whole show was going to be a conversation with Sherry DeNovo, because we also spoke to Arnold Viersen, the uh, MP for Peace River Westlock. His claim to fame, of course, is doing a rap at the conservative convention. This year wasn't just about Drake or Kanye or Chance the Rapper. Arnold Viersen wanted to get in on the rap game, and so he made this rap video, and he played it at the conservative convention, and it's basically a rundown of all the leaders that are currently in the race. It's interesting because he's a nerdy looking guy, kind of like early Drake, but, you know, he also used to be a mechanic. So he's got that like working class root like Eminem. So like he's got a lot to say. And I really love this rap video. I'm being completely earnest here. I love the whole thing. Yo, conservative guys, conservative gals, you want to leave this party? Got to try to be like our pals. You got to talk into the mic. You got to tell us what you're like. You debate to create momentum to run the next federal election. Gotta fight the fight, gotta get the conservatives back in the light. Who's gonna talk? Who's up first? Who's got the gumption to slate our thirst? I come from a big, large rural riding, and I did a poem just supporting the farmers. They were all out in the field seeding, working very hard, so I thought, hey, they need some, they need some help. So I did this poem in the House of Commons saying, like support our farmers and this is where our food comes from and that kind of thing. And the Huffington Post, they took the video and they put a beat to it. So then my colleagues were bugging me about that. They're like, oh, there's, you've got quite the career going on there with this whole rapping thing. I said, you, they said, you better watch out. You might end up with a new job or so. So then at, at convention, I thought I'd just humor them. And seeing as they were calling me the rapper already, I said, well, if you're going to call me the rapper, I'll ask you guys to do a, a rap battle for a leadership race. So that's where the idea came from. And uh, I had a friend of mine, she does the video stuff. So yeah, we worked together and we made, uh, made that video. So that was quite a bit of fun, actually. Arnold, I want to understand your musical background here. What are your musical inspirations? What do you listen to? <laughs> In high school, I was probably a bit of a punk rocker, I guess. Listen to like Green Day, Blink-182, that kind of stuff. When I met my wife, she was more of a country fan, and so that's when I entered into the more country world. But I also, I've also sang in choir as well, so that's probably part of my influence as well. And then, uh, 
yeah, Weird Al Yankovic was kind of an influence in my life, I guess you could say, in, in terms of musical. Currently, I, I pretty much listen probably exclusively to country music. Um, my favorite band right now is High Valley with their song Come On Down. Yeah, it's been a while since you've been around. Won't you come on down? Just come on down. Do you have any like favorite rappers or favorite like hip hop artists that you drew inspiration from? Ah, I guess probably like Weird Al kind of comes into my play on this kind of stuff. But um, the whole rap battle thing comes from YouTube mostly. There's a group called Econ Pop and they've done a, a rap battle between F.A. Hayek and Keynes kind of thing. It's uh, you can you, you can check it out on YouTube. It's ca- called the Fight of the Century. In the same studio. We've been going back and forth for a century. I want to steer markets. I want them set free. There's a boom and bust cycle and good reason to fear it. And then there's also on YouTube. There's this another channel called uh, Epic Rap Battles of History. That's where probably the idea for our video came from. So can we expect a little bit more raps from you in the future? Is this do you do you feel like you should be the the conservative rapping MP? My, my wife says no more raps, Arnold. Nobody will take you seriously if you continue to rap. And you know how that goes. Happy wife, happy life. So Hey I, man, uh, I hear that. Uh, <laughs> I'd listen to her, yeah. I, I'd never expected this much attention from it, I guess. It's been neat to get my message out a little bit just over changing up the way it's delivered, not necessarily the message. So do you feel like politicians need to spice it up a little bit in the way that they communicate with either constituents or, or, or the media or try and get a, a message out there? Yeah, well, it is it is all about getting your message out. A small time before question period, we have it in the House of Commons, it's called member statements, and we each get one minute to say something. And a lot of times you're, you're saying it and people are just like not really paying attention, they're on their phone or whatever else. And so if you change up the method in which you bring your message, it actually everybody starts to pay attention. So I did I did the farmer one, and I also did before that, I did the one on pipelines and pot policy um, a little bit earlier than that. And both of them, I just changed up the method in which, which I brought the idea, and both of them got picked up fairly well. So, What have your constituents said to you about the way in which you're communicating these ideas? People have noticed, right? When I'm back in the riding, they're like, oh man, that was great standing up for farmers like that. Or, oh, thanks for telling Trudeau about our, we need some pipelines. Now it doesn't matter I'm buying gas or grocery shopping or wherever I am, people bring it up, right? So that's, that's been pretty neat. So we've been making comments for five years now. It's over a hundred episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. 
This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer.